thrilled you're here. If you've got your Bible, turn to Psalm 33. We'll go there in just a second, but uh, this weekend, as well as the next few days, obviously, celebrating the 4th of July. We are celebrating a time of our Independence Day. It has been 241 years since a handful of men pledged themselves and their families and their fortunes that they might break away from the British Empire to form what we know today as the United States of America, a new nation no longer a part of the British Empire. They gave us what I'm going to call our national birth certificate, the Declaration of Independence. And I suggest to you that our nation has known as many or more blessings and has been as great a blessing to the nations of the world than any nation in human history. I want to be very clear up front, our, our nation's not perfect. How many know? Because we're composed and we're led by people like you and I that are not perfect. But our nation has fed the hungry around the world. Our nation has brought the gospel around the world to more, to more people than any other nation. If there's a, a cyclone, if there's a hurricane, America is quick to put supplies, medical and, 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 and uh, housing and food, get them on boats, get them on airplanes to help people. And I am grateful to live in this great land. And our blessings are not to be taken for granted, nor are they accidental. But the Bible says in Psalm 33, and I want you to say this with me, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Let's say it again. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. And how many know that's where we're standing today? And this message is a little different message. This is probably more of a history message than I would normally give because I want to help you understand this morning the role of God Almighty, the role of the Bible, the role of the person of Jesus Christ in the hearts and lives of our founders in their writings and in the monuments that they left behind and what they have given to us as this great nation. There's a lot of questions today around America. Was America founded as a Christian nation? I would like to address that, kind of put that to bed if I can in your minds today. I want to begin with a quote by our sixth president, John Quincy Adams. And he made this as he linked together the principles of Christianity and civil government. Our sixth president, he said the highest glory of the American Revolution was this, that it connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. Let me say it again. Leave that up just a moment because you don't hear that in America today. It was our uh, American Revolution that brought together civil government with the principles of Christianity. Now, what do you hear today about that? You hear, oh no, preacher, it's separation of church and state. And what was decided by the Supreme Court, I believe it was in the, in the 1940s, where they turned upside down a doctrine that was introduced originally by Thomas Jefferson in a letter to the Danbury Baptist Association to assure or guarantee them that the government would not infringe on the rights of religious people. And it's been turned just the opposite. Rather than keeping government, uh, 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 rather than keeping the government away from people, now the government wants to keep religion away from itself. And it turned it on its head. But I'm going to read you a number of quotes like this. This is not just something I googled on the internet. This is from source documents. And uh, all my, my words are documented this morning if it's of, in if it's an of interest to you. Today, secular humanists are trying to destroy every vestige of our Christian heritage. And what they're trying to give us to replace it is a man-centered, godless, government-controlled state. And make no, mind, make no mistake about it. 
In America today, we are on a pathway, as the world is. We use terms like globalism. We talk about some one-world government. Well, the Bible predicts this. One day there will be an antichrist that will literally rule all the nations of the world. The Bible predicts this man will tells us that we can't buy or sell unless we hold to his mark and his system. So what we, as we are standing today fighting against freedom, we know one day, though, that there are these forces in the world that will come together. My prayer, though, is that before that happens, as many people will come to Christ as possible and that God will continue to use America as the bastion of freedom in the world. Now, let's talk about the faith of our founding fathers. It's kind of a part two message for me that I, that I began last July 4th. But I want to give you first a historical background to the 4th of July. I want to step back in time over 200 years ago, and I want to, as best I can, almost 250 years now, but step back in time and, and get a feeling for what it was like in their day. If you popped in a spacecraft to America, modern-day America, you'd have conversations about cell phones. You'd be amazed about being able to see ultrasounds and, and, and babies being born and, 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 and telescopes that can see to the ends of the universe. But if we could look backwards in time just a bit, let me give you a feel of what the people felt in their hearts and their actions. Now John Adams, our first vice president and second president, he was the dad, of course, of our sixth president, but he believed in a letter to his wife, Abigail, he said he believed the 4th of July should be a religious holiday like Christmas, a day when we remembered God's hand in deliverance. And a day of religious activities when we committed ourselves to Him and what He called, I quote, solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. Our president, just like I, I, I'm always moved when I hear a video by President Ronald Reagan, as we heard earlier. He was like a grandfather uh, when I was a younger man. He certainly wasn't a perfect man. He was a divorced man. But yet he was a man that still believed God. He still believed in our founding principles. Uh, John Adams gave him these principles, and he said, this is a day that's more than barbecue and ribs. Now, I don't know about you, but I like to barbecue. Uh, ribs are on the agenda for tomorrow night, and uh, I, I live in, uh, on the Arkansas side. If you just drive out in the country, you can come join me. <laughs> My only joke of the day, I live in Redwater. <laughs> but, we're, you know, hopefully we're going to go uh, enjoy the water, go canoeing on Tuesday. You know, there'll be fireworks around the neighborhood. But the 4th of July is more than this. It is more than this. There was a cost for our freedom in America. There's a cost that I often take for granted. There's a man named John Hart. He was a Christian. He was a speaker of the House of Representatives in New Jersey. And he was one of the signers on the Declaration of Independence. And as he signed that document, he was... He was being tracked down by the FBI and the CIA of their day. It was the British soldiers that were trying to track down these signers and execute them as traitors. The ones that gave us the freedoms that we enjoy today put their lives and their fortunes on the line. When he returned to his farm one day, his farm had been burned and destroyed. All his timber had been burned and his cattle butchered to supply for the British government. They were out to stop him. They were out to kill him. There was undeniable Christian influence that surrounded those days when that declaration was signed. Just a few months before the declaration was signed, there was a Lutheran minister. Uh, his name was John Mullenberg. He was also uh, served in the House of Representatives and the Senate. But it happened in January of 1776. January now, not July. He's preaching from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time for peace and there's a time for war. 
And he said to his parishioners, this is not a time for peace. This is a time for war because our cause is just. At the end of the sermon, he took off his robes, the long clerical robes, and he was wearing uh, the uniform of a soldier in the Continental Army. He went to the back of the church. A song was played, and 300 men rose from his congregation that day, and they took up arms to defend the United States of America. Many lost their lives there was a Christian emphasis that circulated. If you listen to Secular America today, you have no idea that this is here. There was a complaint that a British governor, and again, all my notes, they're on the internet, you can pick them up. A British governor wrote to Great Britain. In other words, he's in America. He's trying to establish their kingdom here. But he writes back to the mothership, and he said, if you ask an American who's his master, he'll tell you he has none. He has no governor but Jesus Christ. He has no governor but Jesus Christ. Here's a motto of the American Revolution. King George III of England, we forget this sometimes. We have what remains, is, it's tenuous at times, but a government composed of an executive branch, a judicial branch, and the legislative branch. But you didn't know uh, the, the, the balance of powers, as we see shifting before our eyes. England was quite different. The king was somewhat like a monarch. And he had what was called the doctrine of the divine rights of kings. And this doctrine basically said when the king spoke, it was like the voice of God to the people. So when the president speaks, when the king speaks, you do it or else he's sending soldiers your way. Now We would be aghast of that. Our Bill of Rights guarantees us the right to redress our government. But yet in their day, if you spoke against the king, well, here was the motto that they had in response to that. No king but King Jesus. No king but King Jesus. In other words, in, in, in the day of the, uh, of the New Testament, in Paul's day, Caesar was king. And the phrase, Jesus is Lord, is not just a catchy phrase, but they were saying, no, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And there's a price to pay when they made those stands. Now, the religious background of these founders, there were 56 men that sound the declaration. All of those held religious affiliations. In other words, they were religious people. Primarily when they left England, they left there for the pursuit of, of, of religious freedom. But they weren't all the same. You see, we're being told today, and there's a trend across America, across the world, that we want to give the people freedom to worship, but not freedom of religion. Freedom of worship, they have that in communist China today, a communist state. There's a state church. Uh, and you're free to go in that building and, 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 and live by a prescribed order that the government okays. And they call that freedom of worship. But freedom of religion is not only the freedom to come on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning to church or don't go to church at all. But it's the freedom to say, in my case, no, I don't believe that it's proper that a man would marry a man and I cannot perform that type of what you call marriage. Freedom of religion means for a, uh, a pharmacist to refuse and have the right to refuse to distribute the morning after pill because he or she believes it's a taking of human life. Uh, this is the difference that we have. And there's a pressure trying to keep religion in the four walls of the church rather than in the community. And this is the tension that we face as American people today. But our founders were religious people. 32 were Episcopalian or Anglican. 13 Congregationalists. 12 were Presbyterian. Four of the signers were preachers. Uh, Twenty-nine of these men had seminary, what we call Bible school degrees. But today, if you look at our founders, well, for example, there was a movie several years ago about Christopher Columbus. 
I didn't waste my time. I knew what was in it. They depicted Columbus as this white guy coming to pillage the, pillage, uh, 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 the Americas and pass smallpox. But if you would read from his diary, it's readily available. If you would read from his diary, you would see that he was believed he was a man on a mission from Jesus Christ, extending the gospel of Christ to the nations of the world. There's something that the secular historian cuts out. It's called revisionism that doesn't fit the agenda. But today, as we're talking about the founders, if you were to, if you were to poll America, if you were to look in our classrooms and listen to what's taught on television, they're, a bunch of, they're depicted as greedy white men of privilege who only gave lip service to God. And they came to America to pillage and enslave people for their gain, and that's the picture of them. Steps are taken to do everything they can to undermine them. But let me be quick to say, though, that these men were not perfect any more than we're perfect today. I don't justify their imperfections. Some of them owned slaves. Shame on them. But did you know that there were also black men of their day that owned slaves as well? Not many. Just Google it and find out. Black people that owned, owned uh, 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 plantations, and they had slaves. Both were wrong. But yet there were also men of our founders that were leaders in the abolitionist movement. As we look across time and history, great Americans have had what the Bible calls clay feet. They were spiritual men, but they had flesh as well. Martin Luther King, we rightly celebrate his life. Boulevards are named after him. But there's ample evidence that he was an adulterer. We don't throw him away because of that. Uh, we don't talk much about this, but the Ku Klux Klan was founded by members of the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party's done some great things to help America, but we're all people is the point. We're all human beings. We're all created in the image of God. And just because some people have mistakes, some would say, well, that Thomas Jefferson fathered a child from a slave. Maybe he did. But he also did things to perpetuate. If you go to the Jefferson Monument in Washington, you'll see inscribed on the walls in granite words about God. I would to God, first of all, that myself, all of us and every Christian was perfect so that we wouldn't be hypocritical in our ways or actions, but the fact is we're not. I'm talking to preaching a little better than your amen in this morning. <laughs> but these were men that God used to found this nation. Now, let me talk about, uh, uh, and, and when I say they founded it, listen, they left ample, ample documents, many of which that I'll quote from today, most of which are, are original source documents, but we also, they left monuments all over this land to God. And now we live in a world today that's trying to erase all that. Let's talk a moment about Christianity and early education in America. Uh, Dr. Lawrence Creeman, a Ph.D. from Columbia University, specializing in the history of the American colonies, he said during the colonial period, listen, the Bible was the single most important cultural influence in the lives of Anglo-Americans. Anglo the single most cultural influence. Now, in America today, we'll read that statement, and because we're so conditioned by race, the first thing we say was, well, why just Anglo-Americans? But could we just pause just a second and say, it started there. And you listen, some of, these, some of the founders, some of the people that, that founded our nation, that brought in slaves, treated them wretchedly, shame on them. Some of them treated them like their family. I mean, we as Christians, we, we, we enter into culture where we are. Slavery was a part of the biblical era, not because it was justified, but because it was going on around them. And, and, and the Bible taught Christians how to behave different from the world in the context of slavery. 
Again, in no way do I justify, I condemn it in the hardiest terms. I mean, no, human, tracks, uh, human trafficking today is one of the most reprehensible forms of slavery that happens, and it happens all over America. It happens all over the world when one man owns another. The idea of the concept of what we have as a constitutional republic is we have freedoms in America that's built on we the people, not rights given to us by some oligarch or, or, or by some monarchy. But again, back to Mr. Uh, Mr. Crimin from Columbia. He said the cornerstone of early American education was the belief that children are the heritage from the Lord, and he quotes the Bible. Now, having said that, the first book that, if you were, that was brought as a reader, the New England Primer, designed for the colonies, and this is how people were taught to, to, to not only to do their ABCs, but how about this? How many of you, when you were young or even now, pray this way? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord, say it with me, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord, my soul to take. Now, how many, lift your hands. That's how I was taught to pray by my mom. Where do you think she got that? She got that from the New England Primer. And it was a part of the fabric of education in America. The New England Primer taught kids to read from the Bible, the ABCs. A, for example, the letter A, in Adam's fall, we send all. The letter B, heaven define the Bible mind. C, Christ crucified, and all the way down to Z. And with each letter, they would teach a principle or a phrase undergirding right and wrong. So when you went to public school... In America's early history, you learn the Bible stories and you learn biblical truth. Sadly, by the middle of the 20th century, 1950s or so, readers like Dick and Jane taught people how to read. The only problem is they didn't teach Bible stories. It's like Disney today and all the little gimmicks that you get to teach your kids to read. You don't have anything about Bible today. It's like we've scourged that. We've washed it out of our culture. Uh, this can be quantified when Dick and Jane replaced the, uh, uh, the, the, the biblical readers. Test scores of our kids began to drop. The moral decline of youth became prevalent, and a rising crime rate began to happen. But you say, well, why did they do that? Because don't you think that pe they should care about us? Don't they know these things? The facts are irrelevant when there is an agenda trying to be pushed on the American people. And the agenda in their day, like our day, was rooted because secular educators were pushing to remove Christian education from public schools. Many parents did not want their kids trained in the Bible. And then organizations like the ACLU would bring lawsuits against Christianity in public schools. Today, it's the group Freedom From Religion files lawsuits against whether it's the city of Ashdown for a prayer and a ball game, a commissioner's court somewhere telling them they can't pray. Now listen, mind you, they don't have historical precedent, but there is a push to eliminate every vestige of our Christian heritage from America. Amen. Listen, I want to tell you, friends, though, that there are legions of attorneys, the Alliance Defense Fund and Liberty Council and other places, that if you get yourself in a religious freedom case, they will fight for you at no cost. Wow. But let me go back to the ACLU. Uh, Congress, 1931 was alarmed by this um, uh, uh, ACLU's devotion to communism. Now think about that. The ACLU, this supposed defender of civil rights, and the report issued by this Congress, a special house committee to investigate communist activities, said this, the ACLU is closely affiliated with the communist movement in the United States. 
There's also a, there's still a communist movement in the United States today. You should follow the candidates they endorse. Because the candidates that are trying to get to vote for you, come on, it tells you something. I'm preaching better than you Ray Manning this morning. Let's go to another book. It was called McGuffey's Reader. It began in 1836 through 1960. Very crucial. Because the 60s is when America basically went crazy. When, when, when uh, you know, all the values, you know, just kind of went down the tube. But it was, uh, so 124 years, the most widely used textbook in America. And this textbook that taught kids for 125 years had what was called, one of the things, a things to remember. And here's what they wanted kids to remember. It said, when you rise in the morning, remember who kept you from danger during the night. And it was not ADT. Remember whose sun shines around you. Remember who gives you the sweet light of day. Let God have the thanks of your heart and pray for his protection during the day. Never do anything that you would be afraid or ashamed that your parents should know. Remember, if no one else sees you, God does. Oh, if you were to bring that to school today, you can't do that. And the Constitution says you can't do that. There's separation... They need to just chill out a little bit. Come on now. You say, well, why do people say that today? It's because they weren't taught what I'm teaching you right now. It's like scissors were taken to history. Explained away. In 1961, these readers were taken out of school as well. The modern humanist culture, our popular media, would prefer that we forget America's Christian heritage... And forget the nation was once stronger and safer when Christian morality was taught in public schools. Our Supreme Court followed suit in 62 and 3. They removed prayer and Bible reading from public schools. In that day, the biggest problem the teacher had was kids chewing gum. And today it's with violence. But in a secular society, the only solution we could have is that we'll have more police and more metal detectors and we'll have plastic backpacks, we'll have open lockers, we'll do everything that the state can do to control because our nation was founded on individual freedom and liberty. It was founded on individual responsibility, which means the individual is supposed to govern himself or herself. And if our children are not taught that there is a God and I'm going to be an accountable to that God one day and there's a right way and a wrong way how to live, if they're being taught hatred like they are today, if we're in different groups and we hate each other because we're old or we're young or we're black or we're white, come on, or we're educated or uneducated or we have or we don't have and we hate each other, come on, rather than the Bible. And if you feed people a pablum of that long enough, they're going to do what you're seeing happening around America right now. In Washington a couple days ago, Republicans and Democrats are playing softball and a guy goes out with a list of Republicans and he just starts shooting them. You have entertainers today that will decapitate the head of our president and declare that it's art, a comedian, and you're supposed to laugh. Violence, rather than being taught about it from a biblical point of view, violence is being heralded as a mark of a civil society. Can I tell you, friends, it is not. Now, regardless of what you may think about, our pres- about President Trump, I read this this morning. He was at a rally yesterday, and President Trump, in his, in, his, in his speech, said, Since the signing of the Declaration of Independence 241 years ago, America always affirmed that liberty comes from our Creator. Our President declared that our rights are given to us by God, and no earthly force can ever take these rights away. 
That is why my administration is returning the power back to where it belongs to the people. Now, I don't read that because I want to make you a Republican or I want to make you vote for somebody. I'm just simply telling you what the man that occupies the most powerful office in the world today says to people. And if you hear that reported on the media, you probably won't hear that reported on the mainstream media, but if you hear it, it'll say something like this. He's just trying to appeal to his right-wing, ultra-rabid, crazy base. Let me preach this morning. But are you with me this morning? I'll tell you what's wrong in America. Proverbs 14, 34, it says, Doing what is right makes a nation great, but sin, say it with me, will bring a disgrace to any people. And that's what's going on. Let me move ahead quickly from not only what's taught kids. How about universities? 106 of the first 108 colleges in America were founded by Christians on Christian principles. One in particular, Harvard. Harvard has the reputation of being the most preeminent institution in our land. When it was founded uh, 18 years after the pilgrims landed in the New World, Harvard College was established for the sake of educating the clergy and raising up an academic institution to meet the needs of perpetuating the Christian faith. In other words, Harvard and all the Ivy League schools started out to train ministers and to protect this which we call Christianity. If you were a student in early Harvard, you had rules that you had to go by. The second rule and precept of Harvard, and it's all documented, said this, let every student be plainly instructed that the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. More important than your law degree, more important than your political aspiration is knowing Christ. His third precept was everyone shall so exercise himself and reading the scriptures twice a day. And he quotes Psalm 119. But this same institution has torn the pages of our his, excuse me, history away and Christians are now the enemies. The Washington Post, in May of 2016, the Washington Times reports a Harvard law professor called for liberals to begin treating like Nazis those who subscribe to Christian or conservative beliefs. Supreme Court just passed the law legalizing same-sex marriage. How many know a law can be legal but not right according to God? And what he says is the people that are still hanging on to that tripe, treat them like Nazis were treated. What happened to the Nazis after they fell from power? We're talking about war crimes. We're talking about imprisonment. So here you have a guy attending a university that was given to him, come on now, by men and women dedicated to God, and now he's trying to destroy the very faith that was given to him. Dr. Benjamin Rush, one of the great founding fathers, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and argued by some as the founder of public education, he said this, the Bible should be read in our schools in preference to all other books. The Bible should be read in our schools. So let me close with this now. I could really get you angry if I talked about some things going on today, but I won't. We're at a spiritual crossroads. What can we do? I'll tell you three things. First of all, I'm going to encourage you to be like Paul and stand up for your rights. Number two, I'm going to encourage you to be like Daniel and do what God says, even if it costs you something. And three, I'm going to tell you to be like Jonah and speak the truth in love in hopes of a spiritual awakening. Because the people that are on the, quote, other side are not our enemies. 
They're just lost people like we were lost. Come on, until the light of God shined in our hearts. And I'm just trying to reach across the aisle and help them before they fall into eternity. Are you with me today? It's like we're getting on a ship, and this ship's going to take us to heaven and to glory, and people are on this pier, and this pier is going to collapse and fall down, and we should just be leaning over the ship trying to bring them over, not throwing rocks at them because they disagree with us, because they're moved by the same spirit that used to use, move you and move me when you used to cuss like a sailor. Come on now. I know I did before I was a sailor, and used to do some things that you're embarrassed to tell your children today. What happened? Jesus. Well, how many know if Jesus can change me, he can change anyone. So we'll, we'll close on that thought. But, but let's go back to Paul just a second. Acts 22, 25. Paul was a Roman citizen. He's arrested for preaching Christ. In Acts 22, 25, they stretched him out for the whips. They tied him so they could beat him. And here's what he said. Is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And he scared the bejeebers out of them because they knew that if that were true, they could get in big trouble for, for whipping a Roman, a Roman citizen without, without due process. He stood for his rights. Todd Starnes, a, a writer I'm really enjoying. He's a conservative writer. I think he writes. Uh, uh, anyway, but I, I read his stuff over the Internet. He reported that, I think it was last week, East Central University in Oklahoma said they're removing the crosses, the Bibles, and religious symbols from a campus chapel. A Christian chapel. No, if you want to build a Muslim prayer room, build a Muslim prayer room. This is America. We're, we're a nation of plurality. We're not, we're not, listen, we're not here to say people have to worship our God. We're not here to say people even have to worship anything. But we are here to say we have rights as Christians. And you need to back off. He made this statement. He said it's time for patriots to mobilize and fight back. I agree. But not fighting like you saw on the softball field in Washington. As a Christian, don't you ever pick up a gun and go after somebody. Don't pick up a knife because they disagree with you. Come on. There's more power on your knees in prayer. If you cannot, if you cannot get it done at the voting booth, you go back to the place of prayer. But violence is not a part of the Christian message, come on now, when it's in terms of how the gospel is propagated. That's how the Muslim faith uh, propagates itself, uh, through fear and intimidation and threats and promises of the virgins in heaven. That is not a Christian message. But Jesus did not prevent self-defense. Jesus told Peter, before they left him, he said, if you don't have a sword, get one. Now, I don't know that he said get 50 swords, but take care of yourself, and I don't think they were for peeling apples, okay. But anyway, here's what Todd Starn says. He says, mobilize. And his answer, he said, appeasement is not the answer. What does that mean? These folks are serious. They want to shut my mouth. They want to shut your mouth. They want you to just go along with the Antichrist party line and keep your Jesus in the walls of the church. In his case, mobilizing means calling the president, call the state attorney general. I'm all for doing those kind of things. But here's something else he said. I really liked it. The university's alumni should immediately halt all funding. If they remove the cross from the chapel, we should remove in God we trust from their bank account. I can say a hearty amen. I don't know about you. There's places I don't shop at because they're pushing a pagan agenda down my throat. I'm not going to give them my money. Here's the second thing I say. Be like Daniel. Do what God says, even if it's unpopular and costly. 
Now, Daniel was a governor in his day. He was a high political official, and people were jealous of him, and they wanted to get rid of him. So here's what they did. They schemed, and they said the king should make a law that would be strictly enforced, give orders. They manipulated him, just like someone not too long ago uh, slipped in there what's called hate crimes legislation to be used as an extra whip if we not only like your actions, but what you're thinking, come on. Well, give orders for the next 30 days. No person who prays to anyone except to you, Majesty. If they do it, they'll be thrown into a den of lions. Well, Daniel looked at the consequences. He knew the law had been signed. He goes home, kneels down as usual. But he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to God. And guess what they did to him? They did what they promised. It's dinner time for the lions, and they're growling. And just before David goes and takes a, a dive with the lions, an angel pops in there and pops in with them and says, "Shut your mouth, or I'll shut you." <laughs> and those lions, yeah, yeah, and their old tongues just licking up on Daniel. He goes to bed. Next morning, King gets up real early. Are you still there? I'm here. Pulls him out, and then he threw the people that tried to throw Daniel in that pit. And this time, those kiddies didn't meow. What are you trying to say, Pastor? Sometimes it is through persecution and the stand that God will show his glory. Sometimes you got to get in the middle of it and let the fire get hot, and you be willing to take a loss because of what's true and right and what you believe. But when you're in the middle of the fire, you're not alone. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got in a fiery furnace only because they refused to bow to an idol. And when they threw him in there, guess what? There was a fourth man beside them. And they get out, come on now, slaves, and they come out of that place, and they're promoted in the kingdom, and now Jesus, or now the God of Israel, Jehovah God, is caused to be worshipped. God can use the fire to build glory. But guess what? Even if you burn up, even if the lions devour everything you have, what's it going to matter in 100 years? What's it going to matter if you saved a $5 extra an hour a job or $5,000 or $50,000? What's it going to matter? And I hope it never happens. But what's it going to matter if you lose your house in 100 years? Nothing of that's going to matter. What will matter is when you're standing before the Lord, come on, and it's bragging rights day, they're not only going to talk about Daniel in the lion's den, but they're going to talk about you and I because of the stand you've made for Christ. Let me close with this. And you say, why would you make that stand? Because I care, about, I care about my life. I care about the life of my children and grandchildren, what they're going to inherit. But I also care about the rest of the world. Because I know if Christianity loses its hold on America, the gospel is going to be severely hindered. Because we have sent out more Bibles and more missionaries from America than any nation in the world. And we continue to be the most benevolent nation when it comes to crises around the world. Come on, give the Lord a, a good hand. Let me finish up here. Uh, uh, the third one, be like Jonah, which is speak the truth in love in hopes of a spiritual awakening. Now, Jonah was a reluctant prophet. So if you and I have a hard time doing this, we do it anyway. Jonah chapter 3, God told Nineveh, uh, go to Nineveh, this pagan city, and proclaim the message I give you. And then he gave him only eight words, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Eight words. And you know what happened? 
there was a spirit of repentance that swept over that city. 120,000 people lived there. And God said, I care about them. Only eight words. And he didn't, have a, he didn't have live streaming. He didn't have DVDs. He didn't have loudspeakers. He didn't have anything. All he did was just went walk around that city saying, 40 days, the God of heaven is going to overthrow you. And all of a sudden, they start falling on their faces and said, what can we do to avert this? And they begin to repent and turn their hearts to God. See, friend, the same God that changed me from a wild heathen when I was in high school and turned me around, the same God that changed Saul of Tarsus from a guy that was persecuting Christians is the same God that can take the pagans, the heathens, the unbelievers in the world and cause them to be lovers of Jesus just like you and me. God needs a voice, and when we have the voice, how many know it'll make a difference? Come on, give the Lord a big hand this morning. I'm, I'm done. I'm going to close with this. How many got one of these little in God we trust bracelets? Listen, everybody get one when you leave. They're pretty cool. I'm not much of a bracelet guy, but I'm going to wear this one a while. Uh, let me talk about, lastly, what does this mean, in God we trust? The phrase, in God we trust, first appeared on our coins in 1864. But it was 1957 that they put it on the currency. And lest you ever forget, on a dollar bill, it says these words, in God we trust. Now, I want you to see for just a minute that Christians in Congress were trying to reflect the will of the people as America was becoming more secular and more humanistic. Before the 60s explosion, remember they turned over upside down in the 40s, separation of church and state. They've taken away the McGuffey readers. They've taken away the Christian books out of school. And now this is churning, but all of a sudden some Christians in Congress, they put it on our, our, our money. Our national motto, it was adopted in 1956 by Congress to show the world that we are different from the communist nations in the world. Two years earlier, 1954, they added the words under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. A few years ago, I bought a, I bought a, a, a soda. I forget which kind it was, but they had the Pledge of Allegiance to make me uh, you know, patriotic. But they took out under God. Congress added to the Pledge of Allegiance of our national motto. And the source of this, in God We Trust, comes from our national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. It was written by Francis Scott Key in 1814 after he witnessed the bombardment of Fort McHenry by British ships in the War of 1812. Now, we got 1776. We said we want to declare to be free. In 1812, we're still fighting. But there was this battle at a place called Fort McHenry. There was an American flag that flew there. And he named this flag, he called it the Star-Spangled Banner as it flew over that fort. Now, we'll sing the first verse. That's the only one really anybody knows. But let me tell you the words of the fourth verse of the Star-Spangled Banner, our national anthem. They're on the screen, and I want you to say this with me. Praise the power that hath made and preserved us as a nation. We've got a declaration of independence. We won some wars, but who is he praising? He's praising God. Then conquer we must when our cause it is just, and this be our motto. What's he say for our motto? In God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. Come on, give the Lord one more last big hand today. Why don't you stand to your feet with me? And uh, we're going we're gonna to close. We're going to sing this song the Star-Spangled Banner. 
And I have attempted today to share with you my feelings of the... I'm a, I'm a citizen in two kingdoms. Yes, I am. I'm first and foremost a citizen of the eternal kingdom of God. But I am also a citizen of the United States of America. And it's my contention that God allowed America to become the nation she is. It's a model of freedom to help more people around the world than has ever been helped. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. Did we treat the American Indians like dogs? Shame on us, somebody did. But you know what? God has still used a nation that did a lot of wrong to do a lot of good in the world today. And my commitment to America never supersedes and never outdoes my allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the motto of the American Revolution? No king but Jesus. I honor my president. I honor my Congress. I honor those I disagree with. I do my best to preserve the heritage of the nation. But my ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of God. We're going to sing this song. But, but uh, after the song is concluded, we're going to have our prayer team up front. And if you want prayer about anything before you go, we'd be honored to pray with you. You know, I think it's a very, very sad and I would even say foolish thing to do is to come to church with a heavy burden and struggle and walk out with it. I'm telling you from personal experience, this something happens when you pray with people. Sometimes it's a deep sigh of relief because you don't feel you're carrying the heavy burden as you used to. Sometimes courage is infused because simply you've taken the hand of another and your faith grows. But whatever it is, prayer is connecting us to a God who hears and helps. We'd be honored to pray with you. Most important thing we'd like to pray about if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I need prayer about my relationship with God. I don't know if I died today, if I'd go to heaven, but I sure want to. I want to know God. Maybe you're here today and, and, and after when we sang God Bless America early in the service and I had you pause and bow your head, maybe you felt real awkward when we said, Lord, thank you. You see, it's an awkward feeling because you were almost talking to a stranger. You see, it's interesting how we can know about God but never know Him. And the way God becomes from stranger to friend is when you ask for His forgiveness and believe on Him as your Lord and Savior. And if that's you today, if, this, if you feel right now like I'm talking to you, that's the Holy Spirit. And we just encourage you today, slip out of these chairs and just tell someone, I want to commit my life to Christ. I want you to pray for me. Promise we won't embarrass you, but it'll be the big step you've ever made in your life. Prayer team, they're coming, and our, our friends are going to sing. And don't forget our free concert here on, on Wednesday night at 7 and Connect Class at 6.30. Let's sing. God bless you. Prayer team, come on up to the front. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hail at the twilight's last gleaming whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight O'er the ramparts we watched Were so gallantly streaming And the rockets ran 